0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the Air. This is Neil McMillan inviting you to join me for Pulse of Politics. I'll be bringing you 30 minutes of interviews, conversation and commentary on issues that matter. That's Pulse of Politics. It's fair to say that the political pulse has lost its rhythm this past month. Even erratic, one might say, because Parliament concluded its business for the session and then subsequently resumed, and the general election has been deferred for one month until October 17th. With the pandemic, it's been a tough time to be in government. But it's also been a tough time to be in opposition, and so it's appropriate we should be speaking with a senior member of the opposition, National MP, the Honourable Michael Woodhouse, and welcome to the studio, Michael. Thanks, Neil. Nice to be here. Michael, the role of opposition is never easy uh, to hold the government to account and to promote policies as an alternative government. And Mike Moore used to say uh, it's the opposition's role to oppose, propose and depose. Uh, Yet there seems to be a perception among some members of the public that the government can do no wrong and the opposition should simply shut up. Is that how you see it? Not quite. Um, I think there is an element of,
1: yes, there is some faults that are going on um, in the government's management of COVID, but I don't think we're quite at the tipping point where people, because one thing Mike Moore also said is that, as many have, is that governments don't get voted in, they get voted out. And so the question really is, while there are those faults, has the government done enough, enough to... Uh, warrant being tossed from office. Now, the uh, other things you're talking about opposing, deposing, and proposing—we're all doing that. Um, all national and other opposition parties are doing that. But, but getting the airtime to prosecute those uh, alternative views, to hold the government to account, is actually quite difficult. It has been ever since the first lockdown.
0: Mm. As recently as last Wednesday, ministers were insisting in Parliament that the government had gone early and gone hard and that it was relying on the best expert and scientific advice. How do you respond to that?
1: Well, firstly, we've been overwhelmed by euphemisms. We've heard gone early, gone hard, that the virus is growing, not slowing, that we're part of a team of 5 million and that we need to be kind. These are slogans that are actually rolled out at every platform. Now, there is an element uh, of truth to them, but I think p- the public are getting somewhat tired of these euphemistic references. Actually, what they want to know is what's going on and whether what the government has said is they're doing, they are actually doing. And that's the... The frustration that I'm sensing and have done since June that when they say they're testing staff at the border, when they say they're doing day three testing of people in managed isolation, they damn well should be. Mm. And we're hearing more about the fact that the rhetoric and the reality have been somewhat apart. So those slogans are starting to wear pretty thin.
0: Mm. Most people would concede, of course, that we're dealing with an unprecedented situation, that it's hard to anticipate developments, and that there will be errors of judgment. As one who was involved at the outset on the Pandemic Response Committee, could we have done better, and in what ways might we have done better?
1: Oh, yes. And you and I have talked about the fact that I did highlight shortcomings at the border as early as February before the first lockdown in terms of the way in which people were being screened on arrival, firstly from China and then from other parts of the country. But I also think the public are actually pretty forgiving. This is quite unprecedented, and certainly the response is unprecedented. Um, Older listeners will remember the Hong Kong flu, and younger listeners don't have to go too far back before we uh, think about SARS and MERS and swine flu and so on. The the difficulty with this virus is that with most seasonal flus and, and previous outbreaks, a person becomes unwell before they become symptomatic. In this, it seems more apparent that people become symptomatic before they become unwell, and that makes this a much harder virus to suppress and control. So, you know, there are going to be errors. What I think people want, though, is an honest appraisal of where they're at and actually somebody to say, you know, gosh, we said we were going to do that, we thought we were doing that, we're not, we're going to make things better. Whereas we seem to be treated in a way that suggests that either People who are critical of the government or critique the government's actions are somehow not part of the team of five million. I think that's wrong. That that actually undermines the role of the opposition in this, as you say, to propose, depose, and oppose. And those first two, pro- being constructive and proposing alternatives, we're doing. We're deposing the actions. Um, we're not doing that much opposing, actually. We certainly opposed some uh, one piece of the legislation that was put through under urgency but was supportive of the balance of that legislation so look it's a, it, it it is it is a challenging issue but it's not rocket science mm-hmm. and all the public want is for the government to do what they say they are doing
0: I wonder, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, would we have would we have done better? Had the government initiated a cross party team, something like a, a wartime cabinet, and and if so, would National been prepared to participate in that?
1: Uh, I don't think a wartime cabinet type situation was necessary in the circumstances, because that does actually bring some. Obligations on all parties to act in a in a way that wouldn't be oppositional. So I'm not I'm not sure if we would have accepted that had it been offered. But I'm not sure either that it was necessary. Mm. What was necessary is for the government to reach out to all parties, including um, the National Party, and bring it into the tent more uh, in terms of its thinking, its decision-making, the science, the advice that it was getting, and that has been very poor. Now, I contrast that with the post-earthquake period from 2010 and 11 and and afterwards in the Canterbury earthquakes, where the the responsible ministers were briefing their Mm -hmm. opposition spokespeople very regularly, informing them of what they were planning and why. Now, the opposition spokespeople we're free to criticise and to oppose, but but it created an environment where at least they knew what was going on. That hasn't happened in this uh, outbreak, and I think uh, our response has been the
0: poorer for it. Mm. As of today, what are the main issues confronting us, both in terms of the pandemic and the nation's recovery? I mean, that covers a lot of ground. Sure does. <laughs> I'll
1: try and be brief. The The issue, firstly, is to control the border. Uh, we we now know, despite the fact that the government is not prepared to uh, acknowledge it, um, there's a 99% chance that this most recent outbreak came from a person carrying it over the border, being in managed isolation, and, and either picking it up there or not being detected there. So that's essentially a border failure, if you like. Um, so the first thing we have to do is shore that border up so that that doesn't happen again. And the, gov- the government I- is... Uh, Again, this is a very good example of where the government is saying that it's doing uh, some things, but in fact they're not doing them. The National Party came out with its own policy uh, a week or 10 days ago, which did just that. It would treat everybody as if they were in quarantine in the way the Australians are doing. It would pre-departure test for the virus. The government's response to that proposal was very interesting and said that it would be a waste of time. Well, it won't be a waste of time because... It could well pick up the majority of asymptomatic but positive cases prior to their arrival by well, mathematically. That's going to reduce the risk that it is spread when once it gets here. Um, and we do a number of other things in terms of testing, um, and we, so we've got to get that right. And because the virus doesn't care what nationality you are, then if we can't get it right for New Zealanders, we can't think about anybody else. But conversely, if we can get it right at the border, then we can start to look at a controlled opening of the border for the sorts of people that we know can't come at the moment, international students, the partners of New Zealand uh, residents and citizens that don't themselves have that status, essential skills workers and particularly uh, seasonal workers, for example, REC, agricultural machinists. There is a a growing fear in our horticulture and and agriculture sectors that, that this... Season is going to be a disaster because we won't have the labour. So, you know, there are, I think, ways we can firstly manage risk better. And any suggestion that the National Party's proposals are reckless or would increase risk is just wrong. Everything we are proposing is predicated on the basis of a low-risk strategy.
0: Hmm. With Judith Collins now as the party leader, uh, the health spokesmanship for National has passed from you to Dr Shane Retty. Is that something you've missed?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, I'll be honest, I I was disappointed to have lost it, um, but quite understanding of the circumstances that led to it. I know Judith is the right leader for the moment. But actually, in a way, Dr. Retty is um, p- potentially the right health spokesperson for the moment because we're not talking about system change or structure or, or th- which services we provide and those sorts of choices that governments make. We're talking about the management of a pandemic, which, given his background in medicine and uh, informatics, health informatics, health research, uh, is, is, positions him well to be quite precise in his questioning and he's certainly doing that. There's no doubt um, I've, I've missed that. On the other hand, new responsibilities now with regional economic development and Pike River re-entry and uh, I'm enjoying uh, learning more and, and holding the government to account on their, their issues around the Provincial Growth Fund.
0: Michael, let's turn to the local scene and your candidacy for the newly defined Dunedin electorate. Um, obviously, one of the biggest issues is the proposed new Dunedin hospital. The time frame seems to be slipping away. Is this to be expected because of coronavirus?
1: No. The, and this really worries me. Um, the indicative business case was obviously um, approved by the Cabinet of the previous government under Bill English. In April 2017, and three and a bit years later, the detailed business case still hasn't been signed off by Cabinet. That has got to be a huge concern to uh, the people of the South. Every time I mention it to either politicians or media, I hear, oh, yes, it's going to Cabinet next Monday or the one after that. Well, I've been hearing that for months, and one can't sheet that home to the feet of covid You've got to be able to do two things at once, and this is a vital piece of health infrastructure for the South, and my concern is that it's being delayed. There's another element of government decision-making that's also going to impact on the South, and that is the uh, the government appears to have declined from the Shovel Ready Projects Fund, um, about $100 million for the University of Otago, to... um, push on with its building plan. Now, the reason that's related to the hospital is that because the plan was for those buildings, uh, some halls of residence, a, a health science faculty in Christchurch and one other quite large project were to be done in 2021 and 22. prior to the major part of the Dunedin Hospital rebuild starting. If it doesn't happen in that two years, uh, it may not happen for 15 years. So it's a finely balanced thing. And I think these two either the lack of the decision or the declining of that application for funding for the university are going to have a really significant negative effect on the South.
0: What's the likely time frame conclusion now and the cost of the hospital project?
1: Well, those two things are intertwined. Um, I, I don't know the answer to the first question on time frame, but I know that it's being affected by arguments that are being had in the background between the Capital Investment Committee, and Treasury on the cost and scope of the project. And I think Treasury are, once again, nickel and diming this. We need this hospital. The longer it is delayed, the greater the cost. And so you've got this circular argument now. But the cost is the cost. And we won't know it in any event until we put mm. it out to tender. So, you know, they just need to to get on with it. And, and this is where you can't... De- delegate those sorts of tough decisions to treasury ultimately it's the government that decides where money is spent and how much and it's the government that is responsible for the delay
0: listeners we're speaking with the honorable michael woodhouse michael both you and david clark have been seen to have blotted your respective copybooks in recent times, and this has provoked criticism, some of which, in my view, has been excessive and even insulting. And no credit to the Otago Daily Times for publishing it. Is there anything you'd like to say on these matters? Well, in a nutshell,
1: I went from, in a very short space of time, from being um, leading the the opposition's response on the COVID issues to having to deal with three things within a week. Uh, one was the revelation of uh, my peripheral involvement in the leak of COVID-19 data by my colleague Hamish Walker in the, insofar as I received some information but didn't act on it. Uh, the other is the... Uh, accusations that I had made a story up about a homeless person staying at the Crown Plaza, comments actually that I continue to stand by and the government hasn't adequately um, addressed the issues that were raised. Uh, and thirdly, a more local issue around a photograph that was taken about eight years ago that uh, that involved um, the Dunedin South MP Claire Current. All three of those things kind of landed at the same time. And um, I must say, I've had to deal with a fair amount of vitriol on social media um, i 've been called any number of things that i won 't elaborate on um, and and it has been a pretty tough time now the consequence of the Hamish Walker issue was that not only is he no longer standing uh, as the candidate for for Southland um, but that I lost my uh, health portfolio role and um, and I am disappointed at that but you know these are that th- th- that was a very unusual period, I must mm. say and i've I've had to reflect long and hard about the degree to which I controlled the events that were going on, whether I was responsible for them, whether I would have done things differently in hindsight, and so that has been a period of reflection. but you know what this is a pugilistic mm-hmm. uh, uh, role. You, you do have to take the standing eight count sometimes, dust yourself off, and then decide whether you want to keep on with the next round, and that's what I've done, and I'm back in.
0: As, as I've mentioned, David Clark has also been tarnished. Do these incidents hurt one of you more than the other, or do they cancel each other out? Well, from the, the short-term
1: perspective, is that David had the more significant uh, setback in that he resigned from Cabinet. That's where you can really make the decisions there's a there's a financial impact to that and there's certainly a loss of face that, for me, I mean, I'm still on the national front bench. Mm-hmm. Um, my income wasn't affected, my roles were, and perhaps my ego – but, but I think David took the bigger hit. And he and I have talked about this. It's quite, it's quite funny, this, and we do laugh about it, that, that there we were ready to shape up as the two, you know, the health minister and the shadow health minister in the same electorate, and, and neither of us are now holding that role in only a short period of time. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's politics. Um, I've, I, I'm, I have sympathy for David, uh, albeit that, you know, a, um, he, I think it was the right decision. Mm. Uh, by him and probably by the Prime Minister. And he has a bit of sympathy for me. That's just the way it is. If we, we, we go hammer and tongs in the House, but but we're actually quite friendly off the field, and I think that's the way good politics should be done.
0: There have been quite significant changes in the boundaries for the two Dunedin seats. Are these significant from your point of view with the Dunedin electorate now? Uh, only that they've got
1: redder uh, in, in the Dunedin electorate. The boundaries have made that a redder seat, and um, my uh, b- 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 my mo is to is to uh, campaign for the party vote, and I'll continue to do that. On the other hand, the Tyree electorate with uh, has got a bit bluer hmm. and is uh, a bit in play. I think, and uh, the young candidate there for us, Liam Kurnigan, has been working really hard, and Labor shouldn't be taking that for granted. Um, but ultimately it is the party vote that will determine government and that's what I'm going hard for again this time around COVID has completely thrown the rule book out and I, I must say I'm feeling quite discombobulated by the, the inability to be able to campaign in the traditional way the four week delay to election day which will be actually advantageous I think for opposition parties but it has been a really really unusual campaign so far
0: How do you define the main issues for the election and are they distinctly different in Dunedin? Well, there are COVID recovery issues. In fact, I didn't answer
1: the second half of the question that you asked earlier when we were talking about border management because the reason that's so important is for the second reason is that economic recovery is absolutely vital. Uh, Every day I hear of businesses and employees and uh, franchises that are just pulling the plug and going that's it I can't I can't carry on now and the 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 financial social and economic impact on our society is going to be massive the like of which we still don't know yet Uh, but it is becoming increasingly apparent that uh, we need a better plan we need a plan for recovery and we're still in this crisis mode and, and and the public can't see what's next Now, to some degree, there's an element of um, electoral imperative in that. I think we'll be having, whoever is government, we'll be having a different conversation after October the 17th. But this is about who is the party that is best positioned to lead New Zealand through the recovery. And I'll stand on our track record in that, particularly through the last GFC and the Canterbury earthquakes. We know what to do. We've been there before. Uh, the quality of our spending needs to be better. The quantum of our spending needs to be watched very carefully. Uh, but those strategies that will enable us to, to grow the the uh, job base and therefore our economy is going to be absolutely vital. And the government's not even talking about that right now.
0: And the nature of the campaign, does it make it increasingly difficult to campaign, yeah. Well, uh, among other things, just because of the deferment?
1: Yep. Uh, well, it's impossible in Level 3 in Auckland, and that's a third of the country. In Level 2, we've made a decision to uh, cease some of the traditional modes of campaigning. Uh, so sort of the door knocking, the human hoardings um, uh, have have basically been on, on pause for the last two or three weeks. So, you know, social media is fine. Phone calling is going to be cranking up. It's starting this week. Uh, there's a bit of welfare calling there as well. Just checking in to see that our older uh, electorate uh, constituents are okay, and then we'll be doing the, the the pitch for the vote. Getting policy out there is not normally, uh, is you know, you often do that through electorate uh, uh, meet the candidate meetings. Well, I, I don't think we're going to be having too many of them. I'm not sure that people are going to be ready to go into dusty church halls around the city and in, you know, numbers up to eighty and a hundred. Whether people would want even to put them on because of the responsibilities that they have for social distancing and registration. So it is a really, really different environment this time around. And that's why we've had to work really hard, because that's often the airtime that opposition parties benefit from. And at the moment, we're not getting as much of it as we like. But we can't change that. That is what it Mm -hmm. is. So we just have to work within those constraints.
0: Seven weeks to go. How do you read the election at this stage? What parties will be there? What parties might not be there? I don't think New Zealand First will get back.
1: Um, they're not going to win Northland. In fact, I'll be there next week with my colleague um, Matt King and we'll be campaigning in Kaitaia. Um, the Greens will go close to that 5% threshold, but I think they'll just scrape through. Um, Albeit that, and you know, I've mentioned it before. I, you can't rule out the possibility that there are only there are only three parties represented after the election. And that's National, Labor, and ACT. So that makes it imperative to push that party vote up as, as high as we can. We've lost a lot, but interestingly, we lost it to Labor during that period, and and I think we can get it back. Uh, it's quite volatile. We've had our own issues with leadership and so on, but the ship is back on on course. And uh, it's going to be a really, really busy few weeks, and so it's just you know obviously I think it's fair to say that the odds are against us this time around, but we're we're still well in the game.
0: Finally, Michael, the two referenda that confront us, one on recreational use of cannabis and the other on voluntary euthanasia, where do you stand on those two issues?
1: Uh, the party has taken a position that we oppose the uh, legalisation of cannabis referendum, and I support that very strongly. I take a health view, and I just don't believe the health of New Zealanders will be improved by that change. Uh, on conscience, I oppose euthanasia and therefore will be voting no in the uh, referendum on the End of Life Choice Act. So uh, for reasons which we've canvassed before, I think, but but I, uh, I don't believe it's necessary people understand dying they worry about the manner of their death but i think our palliative care when it's appropriately deployed and the and this, the family and social supports so that they can be put around people can alleviate the suffering of just about every person facing end of life and i don't believe this act is the right thing to do
0: Michael Woodhouse, thanks so much for joining us this week. It's been a fascinating discussion, as it always is. And as with all candidates, we wish you well. Thank you, Neil. For the forthcoming general election. Cheers (laughs) Cheers <laughs> Listeners, we've been speaking with the Honourable Michael Woodhouse MP and National candidate for the Dunedin electorate And that's our programme for the week and This is Neil McMillan closing with a reminder You can catch Pulse of Politics at the same time every week On air, online or on podcast You've been listening to Pulse of Politics Broadcast every Sunday evening at 8 o'clock on Otago Access Radio if you'd like to hear this program again, you can download a podcast from oar.org.nz.
1: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.